All right, so turn to Colossians 1. Last week we made it through the first half of this preeminence section. So if you remember just while you're turning there, the first two verses are the introduction to the book. And then verses 3 through 14 of the first chapter are the Thanksgiving section. So the grand Thanksgiving and prayer that Paul typically gives in every letter. And then verse 15 started the, the more doctrinal section of the book. And so we walked through verses 15 through 17 that made these grand uh, Christological statements. It's just these statements about who Christ is. Uh, and so we should probably recap what some of those statements were because we're going to need to remember those things as we walk through the second half of this section. So what were some of the grand statements about Christ from 15 through 17? Image, good. Firstborn, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's the creator. You might be into the next section there. I mean, it's it's all the same section, but what we haven't looked at quite yet. So hold on to that one for a little bit. Oh, no, no, we're just looking at 15 on. No, you're right. That's, yeah, that's 13. (laughs) But from 15 on is what we were looking at. All right, so y'all have done well. So these are the grand statements about him. And then Dave mentioned part of one that gives really the purpose for everything that Christ did, everything that's said about Christ, uh, what he did as creator. What was the purpose of all those things? It's two words. Not that one, although he does do that. The purpose of making all these things, of creating everything, was what? The end of verse 16. For him. So purpose for him. Okay. So that's the purpose, really, of everything he did there in creation is for him. All right. Now, that's the recap. Now let's read 18 through 20, and then we'll dive into it after that. Can I have someone volunteer to read that, please? 18 through 20. Thanks, Israel. All right. Thank you. So let's look at verse 18. And and the reason that we split it there from 17 to 18 is, did you all notice a change in how the verses are going there, what the language is like, what the content is like? You notice any difference there? For those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. You might not notice it until it's pointed out to you.
Well, you, you see, you're under the right change. There's how things came about. So that's a huge part of it. But then that's not quite the right connection to this new section. Yes, creation of the church. And that's a good way to put it. So we're transitioning from old creation, who Christ is in relation to the world, to the original creation. And now we're transitioning into who Christ is with the church, with the new creation. And so there's a major uh, shift taking place from 17 when you move into verse 18. Uh, so we've talked about old creation, that he is the image of the invisible God. All right. We've talked about the fact that he is the firstborn because he is eternally begotten of the Son. He was not made. He has always been uh, proceeding from or always begotten of the Father. Uh, what else? And then creator. All creation came about by him or through him and for the purpose of bringing him glory, therefore, for him. So that's the, his preeminence over the old creation. And now we need to talk about the new creation. And so what is the first phrase that Paul uses going into verse 18 to describe how Christ is over the new creation? He's the head of the body. What is a head? Oops, as I kick back. What is a head? Yeah, well, it makes everything else work. So whether we're talking about the analogy of our bodies, whereas the head, the brain, drives everything else, what else in other ways do we use this word head? The top? Okay, yeah. Do you mean what? In what way do you mean the top there? So like an authority kind of thing? Yeah, okay, good, yeah. So if you're talking about head, whether you're talking about a body, or you're talking about the head of something, you're talking about the control, so to speak. The, the, the person or the thing in charge. Uh, the head is the leader. Um, the head gets the most glory more often than not. Uh, if you're, something's flying at you, would you rather it hit you in the chest, the back, or the head? Yeah, yeah, okay. You care if your arm gets hit by a baseball if the alternative is it hits you in the nose and breaks your nose. No, you put your arm up and you block. You protect your face, right? So the head also is preeminent in that way, too. Uh, okay. And so Christ is the head of the body. So what is the body in this case? The church, right. And so we get that kind of double statement. So he's the head of the body. You don't know what the body is. It's the church. So that's in a positive. That means those two words are referring to the same thing, uh, giving us a picture of the church. Okay. Any other thoughts on that first line? Is this the first time that this language of head and body with Christ and the church is used in Scripture? Is this the only place? No. Yeah, it's, it's picked up. That's really a common uh, description, especially with Paul, of the church and of Christ. All right, second phrase. So first, he is the head of the body, the church. Second, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So let's just look at the, the first uh, section there. He is the beginning. 
What does that mean? He's the beginning. Yeah, because we already talked about how he was the beginning of creation and the creator. But now we're not talking about the old creation anymore. We've transitioned to a new field. Now we're talking about this new creation, the church, the new covenant. And so in that sense, you're absolutely right. The beginning is no longer referring back to the beginning of time or the creation, uh, though, he, of course, he is that as well. But now he is the beginning of this new creation, this new world. So in what way is he the beginning of those, well, of the new creation? Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Well said. Um, so, Israel, I'm going to go off what you said there. So, he's beginning. Now, were you using the next line to help explain that, the firstborn from the dead? Okay. Cheater. No, I'm just kidding. That's good. Uh so, yeah, he's the beginning. Well, he's be- the beginning partially because he's the firstborn from the dead. Now, is he the first person to rise from the dead? No, but he was the first one under the new covenant. He was the one that fulfilled the law. Because he lived the first life and then he was Right. His was unique. So what were some other resurrections that had already occurred? Lazarus? Sorry? Yeah, Jesus raised a young man from the, from the dead. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, yep. Elisha raised the Shunam, Shunammite's son. Yeah, I have to look at my notes to remember that name, Shunammite. Uh, yeah, that's in Second Kings uh, 4. Um, yeah, so we have several occurrences of resurrections, of people being raised from the dead by God's power. But Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead here. So what is the difference? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh yeah, so some some might read through this and says, Well, he can't be firstborn because he wasn't literally the first. But this firstborn always used in that sense. Right. Correct. Uh, as there wasn't a day, he was not, right? And so in that sense, he couldn't have been the first to just be created. He wasn't created. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. They are very closely paralleled. Um, and, yeah, so the, the, the way we understand firstborn isn't just that you were chronologically born before somebody else. That's not what we're really referring to. It's the title. It's the inheritance. It's the prestige. 
Because in the Old Testament uh, Israelite world, Israelite culture, your family lineage was everything. And who got all the inheritance? The firstborn. So if you were firstborn and got that inheritance, you carried on the family line, period. Um, that was your full inheritance. And so Christ, uh, he is the firstborn. He is first in priority and in eminence, in power. Right, right. Uh, he is the one that inaugurated, yes, the resurrection of the dead. Catch up here. All right, do you all know of any other similar passages that use similar language for calling Christ firstborn? I don't expect you to. I wouldn't be able to pull them out of my head on my own either. I'd need help. All right, Revelation 1.5. Just look at these quickly. So start looking at the second part of verse 4 in Revelation 1. It says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. So you see the exact same phrase being used. And in these verses, what is kind of the context of how it's being used? How is Christ being presented in those verses? His credentials, ruler of kings on earth. Yeah, he's sitting on the throne. He is the great ruler. He is supreme. And so it is in his power that he's called here the firstborn of the dead. Uh, and so it's really being used the same way back in Colossians. This is his preeminence. This is his right as the firstborn is to rule, is to reign, uh, is to carry on the inheritance. Uh, that's his right. All right, then what was the other reference? Uh, Hebrews 1.6. And this one's slightly different wording, but still very similar. So I'll start in verse 5. So for to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. So Of course, here he's talking about Christ. And what is the whole point? And you may have to go back to your memory of what this, these verses in this opening chapter are about, really the book of Hebrews. What is the purpose of these verses? What is the purpose of this book? To show that Christ is better than anything else possible, better than Moses, better than the law, better than anything else. Christ is the fulfillment of everything in the fuller realization. And in that way, one of the titles given is that he is the firstborn into the world. So again, just this firstborn title giving this idea of power, of prestige, of rule, of right uh, to rule. All right, any questions about the firstborn idea? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah, and that ties well to that Revelation verse too, because he is the creator and yet he's the judge. Uh, yeah, that's great. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no, that's good. And then we'll talk about John 1.14 later, which connects closely with that. Well, what did the word come to do that created everything? Well, he came to tabernacle among us. Okay, we'll get into that later, but all right. Um, we probably don't need to go there, but in Psalm 89... Uh, there's also another allusion to this idea of firstborn, where the psalm isn't written by David. It's written by Ethan uh, Ezraite, I think is the name. I don't know, something weird like that. But Ethan, uh, and it's about David, though. And in that psalm, it refers to David in the Davidic line, but David is the main object there as the firstborn. Do you see a chronological issue with calling a David the firstborn? Was David a firstborn son? He was, he was way down the line. <laughs> but because he was the messy, uh, uh, the kingly line, the king, well, he's labeled the firstborn because his descendant is going to be the true firstborn further on. Uh, so again, firstborn does not just mean chronologically you're first. Because of course in the flesh, Jesus was not the first. But in his deity, he's God. So he's eternal, right? So we've got to keep that in mind. All right. So he's beginning the firstborn from the dead. And then what's the purpose of that? Why does it matter that he's the firstborn from the dead? The rest of verse 18 gives the answer. Right. Right. He is preeminent in all things. So why does it matter, though? I mean, why does that make him preeminent in all things, that he was the firstborn from the dead? How do we connect that to what came before from 15 through 17? Was he the firstborn of the old creation? Right. And now he's the firstborn over what? The new creation. So why does it matter that it's both? Why not just one? Why couldn't he just be firstborn over the new creation? Why couldn't he just be firstborn over the old creation? Yeah, you're given the character of God answer, which of course is absolutely correct, but, <laughs> um, but more detailed, more detailed. Right. Because the whole point is to declare how Christ is preeminent. And if he's not preeminent over a whole section of the creation, can he really be preeminent at all? No, he has to be the firstborn over everything. And so, what we're seeing is this parallel between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and how Christ is a, uh, 
described as over both. There are strong connections from the first to the second. Uh, whether you look at it like a shadow in the reality or parallels, um, I just want you to see that there's a strong connection here. Because uh, if Christ is not supreme over one, well, then he's not supreme at all. But he's supreme fully over both. And that's the picture we need to understand here. Right. Right. I mean, they're connected, obviously. I wouldn't say that they're uh, synonyms. Yeah, I hadn't really thought to compare those two words before, if I'm honest. Begotten and firstborn. No, no. I mean, in, in the way we use it often in terms of you're chronologically the firstborn, of course, for us, as you were created, yeah. Um, was, was the Son of God created? Right. And yet he took on human flesh. So in his humanity, there is a point when he began, right? But his deity was always uh, there, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're getting into some very confusing language stuff there with begotten. No, that's fine. That's fine. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. And, and that really refers to the, the relationship of the Trinity and how they're differentiated to the, the persons within the Trinity. Whereas this is talking about Christ over creation, so God over. So they're kind of different fields, too, if that makes sense as well. But I'm going to think more about that. That's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought to compare those words before. Um, all right, now I've got to figure out where I am again. <laughs> Any other thoughts on what we've talked about or the wrench that Israel threw? <laughs> All right, I think we covered 18. Let's uh, dive into 19. So, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In one sense, that's a really simple statement. And in another sense, if you really try to dive into that, that's something that you can't understand at all. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, read yours again. I noticed that when you were reading. Yeah, it really just switches the wording around. The tense was still the same. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, I will say, though, that the, the ESV is actually much closer to the order of the Greek, which doesn't always mean one way or another, but it, it, in this case it is. Uh, so I, I'm not sure we can stake too much on the order there. Uh, but I see what you're saying, because it pleased the Father to do this, 
and here was all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So yours is almost giving a shortcut that we're talking about the Father, whereas the Greek just just says God. Uh, I think I preferred the God translation there. Yes, yes. Uh, so, yeah, image, and now we've got, oh, how to summarize it, fullness, I guess. Well, that says fullness. Just pretend it says fullness. I don't know what it says. Fummus. Fummus and fummus. All right. Um, but what does it mean that, first of all, okay, for in him, okay, we're talking about Christ. Christ is the him. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Somebody explain to me what you think that means. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, we talk about the humiliation of Christ, uh, especially uh, around Christmas or when we move towards Easter and talk about, um, I mean, this is the beginning of his humiliation is coming to earth in the incarnation at the first place, right? And then, of course, the end of it is going to the cross. Uh, well, what is the verse that he emptied himself taking? That's Philippians 2, isn't it? He emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, uh, making himself nothing. That's the idea. It didn't mean he emptied himself in the incarnation of all deity and came to earth as just a man. It didn't mean that God just picked the man and decided, you know what, I'm going to go enter into that guy. And that's adoptionism, that's a heresy. It doesn't mean that either. It means that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in flesh. Right, the fullness of deity, but not that the Father is the same as the Son in the, in the flesh. Right, but yeah, and this is where it really gets confusing in our minds, but somehow that the fullness of God can take on flesh, can do so willingly, and even say, be pleased to do so. Can be pleased to, as Philippians said, empty himself. Uh, can be pleased to, as what theologians refer to, humiliate himself in coming to earth and entering into his own creation. And so we're also seeing a picture where part of why he's over the new creation is because he not only created the old creation, but he was willing to do what in relation to it? Enter into it. Um, so we see how this is connected with the first portion of these verses. All right, what other thoughts do you all have? Do you all have other thoughts there? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Uh, go to Daniel 7. We'll just build on that right now. 
And y'all probably know this passage well. This is another one of my favorite passages. Just find myself saying that about most passages at this point, but that's okay. There's other Old Testament passages that speak in these ways, but I think most of you there. So Daniel 7, start in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, that's a sign of deity of God's power, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Who is this son of man? Christ. Is he presented as a humble, meek person that anybody could walk up to and uh, not be punished or struck dead for? How is he presented? A king, a mighty king, a conqueror, the supreme ruler, uh, the glorious God, because you don't come riding on the clouds of heaven unless you are God in the Old Testament. And you'll think of other passages in the Old Testament that present Christ in a similar way. All right, Isaiah 6. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Uh, And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's one part. Um, And How did Isaiah respond to this vision of seeing God? Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He thought he was dead because he saw God and is holy. Now, Holiness. Now you go back to Colossians 1. For in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That same glorious, almighty God dwelling in human flesh. And as Dave pointed out, somehow Jesus could be approached. Somehow that glory was veiled, though it was not lessened. It was not removed, it was not partial, and yet it was veiled so that mankind would not die in his presence. Um, and we'll talk more about that actually in the sermon today, uh, about John 1.14. Um, but that's the, the image we should have is this almost, well, it, it, it does seem impossible to our minds, something that should boggle our minds because how can you fathom an infinite and an eternal God dwelling in man? And yet that's what Christ is. All right, any final comments on that before we move into 20? All right, one thing I'll hint at before we do. Uh, again, John 1.14, that's what the sermon is on today. But there, there's this word for dwell, and it uh, can also be translated as tabernacling. And so the idea is the Old Testament tabernacle, Jesus is a more full realization of that. Uh, that was a partial picture. Jesus is the full picture. I'll leave it there on that. Now, this is not the same Greek word, though it's translated the same, but it has a very similar meaning. 
the meaning is the same, though the Old Testament imagery maybe is not. Uh, but Jesus came to dwell uh, here. Um, that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus as he dwelt among mankind. I'll sum it up that way. All right, verse 20. So through him, that is through this uh, God-man, through this fullness of God in man, uh, to reconcile to himself all things. So what does it mean to reconcile? To restore communion, to forgive, okay? Other definitions? What else do you all have? To remove hostility. Good. Any others? Bob? Intercession. Yeah, I like that idea being added in. I think all those definitions were good. All those descriptions were very good. Uh, So through him to reconcile to himself all things. All right. So he's reconciling all things to himself. What are the all things? (laughs) Everything. Yeah. Yeah. we got a bigger description of what all things were in the, the old creation section, right? Uh, heaven and earth, visible, invisible, rulers. Oh, wait. Get the order right. Uh, thank you. I'm just now realizing I'm wearing my glasses this whole time. That would help. All right. Uh, but all things, everything, everything in creation, uh, physical, uh, spiritual, uh, uh, demons, uh, humans, fallen, good, everybody to be reconciled to himself. Now, what might that make you think of if you don't know your theology or anything about Scripture? Reconcile to himself all things. What might your mind immediately go to? Right. So he's reconciling everything. Great. Now it doesn't matter what we do. All right. Uh, is that what this means, though? No, and the rest of Colossians, in many parts, rules that option out very quickly. This is not talking about redeeming every single person, every single fallen angel. That's not what this is talking about. Does reconciling always mean the same as redeeming? No. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> Apparently not. Uh and ultimately, if you look towards the end of verse 20, we actually get the well, Paul's definition here of reconciliation. You see it? It's at the end of verse 20. Right. And so, but wait a minute. Doesn't that really point to universalism again? Okay. Okay. I'm going to pick at that just just for a second. So I apologize in advance. 
So all things then, that only refers to all things within the new creation. So, <laughs> well, I don't have a firm answer for you here yet. I'm still working this through too. Uh, but as we think about all things, are we talking about all things in all creation, everything? Or are we talking about only in the new creation since we're in the new creation section? And that's a valid question that I just thought of when you said that. So now we got to work this through and I'm working it through with you. Uh, what does all things mean in that sense? Because there's kind of two different routes you can go here and both are correct theologically. So which is correct in terms of what the passage wants you to uh, understand. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's that Romans idea. Yeah, that is groaning. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, yeah, I don't know how we could exclude that here. Um, and I think the difficulty in our minds is, but what do we do about the rebellious, those who are unrepentant? What do we do with fallen angels who we know aren't being redeemed, who don't have that offer of salvation in Christ? So then that's the difficulty is on the one hand, we have that great verse from Romans. But on the other hand, we have, but we know these people aren't being redeemed. So what does it mean? Um, what are all things here? Yeah, I see what you're saying. The old creation was looking forward to the new creation. Right. And it's bringing consistency, reconcile all the scripture. Yeah, I see the connection you're drawing. Um, I don't think it changes our answer one way or another, but I absolutely see that connection and what you mean. Because uh, they are strongly connected. And that is the point. Is the old creation needed help. <laughs> we'll put it that blunt way. And then, yeah, the new creation is meant to... to Fix that to reconcile that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Old Testament, New Testament, almost matching together. Yeah. 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 Same kind of idea. Um, yeah. Okay. And so, if it's everything in the new creation only, which I'm not sure we can say that, you could follow that through, and it would still be theologically correct that well, Christ has redeemed all He wants to redeem. But I think all things has to apply to literally everything. And in that sense, what we have to get through at the end of making peace by the blood of his cross, does that mean that the cross, the only purpose of Christ coming in the cross, the only purpose was to redeem those who were elect? Is that the only purpose of Christ coming? The only purpose. Is there the purpose of preaching the God? Sorry, go ahead. Oh, it absolutely is for his elect. Right, and I completely agree. So let me ask the question a different way. Do we only preach the gospel? Of course, this is what we want. But do we only preach the gospel? Is the only purpose in God having us, telling us to preach the gospel so that people can be saved? Of course, that's the main goal. We don't. Right. 
Yes, but I'm just talking about in preaching the gospel, have we failed if the person does not repent and confess their sin and belief? But then if they don't, then wasn't our preaching worthless? Right. 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 And so he is convicting the world of their sin. He is showing them what they are. And they reject the truth, therefore they are rightfully condemned. So when we preach the gospel, there's always something happening. Otherwise, God's promises about his word never returning to him void would be lies. But when we preach the gospel, somebody is always either being softened and prepared to believe or thrown in the faith, or they are further rebelling and hardening their heart, storing up judgment for themselves, being declared firmly and positively that God gave them every opportunity and yet they chose to rebel. The gospel is always a work. And so in this sense, the blood of the cross, Christ going to the cross, is for his elect. Absolutely. We're not, we're not messing with that point. That is true. But when Christ goes to the cross, it's also a sign of the condemnation of the world. Because the cross for Satan, when he looked at Christ on the cross and saw his resurrection after, what was that for Satan? What did he know? He was done. And it's the same for the world. And so this sense of reconciliation, again, it's not the same as redeemed. Um, if you just swap that out for redeem, then you get yourself into trouble real quickly here. Reconcile doesn't necessarily mean to make everybody happy and safe. Reconcile means that everybody, um, let me use this wording, will be neutralized. Either they will bow the knee to Christ in faith or they will bow the knee in defeat and be judged. So in that way, there's reconciliation and there's peace because the war is in. Does that make sense? Have I confused you thoroughly? That was some uh, <laughs> deep stuff we just talked about. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, and you're absolutely correct with the Greek. All things uh, does not always mean every single last thing. That is definitely true. And that's where you have to look at the context to figure out, are we truly talking about all things? Are we talking about everything in this sphere? Are we just talking about um, the fact that Christ has done everything he needed to do to redeem his people? And that could be all things. And so that's why... In that sense, all things here is tricky. Uh, I think all things, because of verses 15 through 17, I'm taking all things to truly mean all things. But this is what I was talking about. There's two different routes you can take with this ver- these verses, and both are theologically correct. And we've talked about both of those now. Uh, that this is truly all things, and that we have to look at the negative side, of you, if you will, of Christ's work as, in terms of judgment on the world, uh, as well as the positive, or... Uh, Paul could, it is possible, he switched uh, the way he was using all things in this second section, and he's only talking about the redeemed uh, realm. So that is a possibility. Uh, And I'm not willing to tell you that one is definitely wrong and one is definitely right. I'm just telling you, I think all things is all things because of the first portion. Did, Did I answer your question at all? Okay, okay. Or did I just further confuse everybody? We'll see.
All right, other comments or thoughts on all that chaos? All right, now we've got to go back and connect everything after that deep dive. What was the main purpose of this section? Christ above all. So no matter which view you take, Christ is Lord over the new creation. Christ is head over all things. He has reconciled all things. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Uh, he made peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, so we see his fullness over the new and the old creation. And if he's chief, preeminent over old and new, what is left for him not to be preeminent over? Nothing. Every single last thing is subjected under his feet. And that's the big picture we're supposed to understand, whether we disagree on all things or not. <laughs> we are to understand that Christ is over everything. All right, any thoughts about the big picture of this and how the two connect? Well, hearing none, we'll see if we can get into these next few verses here. Y'all see what I mean, though, about I think it was last week I said this is one of the most difficult passages to me, and it just hurts my head every time I look at it. That, I, I hope you understand why now. Uh, maybe it's just I'm not smart. But anyway, 21 through 23, if someone would be willing to read that. All right. Thank you, Jane. So back to verse 21. What was the last statement in verse 20? Yeah, so I think what we're going to see in these verses is that Paul's kind of expanding on that point a little bit. We've kind of finished the crisis of preeminent. Now we're going to talk about well, what, what's the effect for you, uh, in a sense. Uh, so how does he describe you in 21? <laughs> yeah, you would hope he'd say, man, y'all were some great people. Just wonderful. I, I see why God chose you. No, unfortunately not. You were bad people. You were alienated and hostile in mind. And if that's not bad enough, you were doing evil deeds because of that. Uh, what does it mean to be alienated? Yeah, apart from, good. Is it ever good to be referred to as alienated from something? Have you, yeah, you're shunned. Have you ever heard that used positively? I have not. <laughs> you don't want to be alienated from something. Often that's used for like family or alienated from your people or something like that. Or you've alienated yourself. What does that mean when someone says that? It's your fault. You've driven everybody away. Nobody wants to be with you. <laughs> you've alienated yourself. Uh, so you were once alienated. Now, what does alienated mean here, you think? I think it's from God. Yeah. 
I think you're right. You were alienated from God and you were hostile in mind. What does that mean, hostile in mind? Right. Enemy? Yeah, that gives the right idea too. Uh, you're at war with God. Um, you're not just alienated from Him. You're alienated from Him partially because you don't want to be with Him. Um, you hate God. That's what that means. Alienated and hostile in mind and well-doing evil deeds. I don't think we need a deep dive into what that means. Uh, if you hate God, if you're alienated from God, there's only one possible result for how you're going to live your life from day to day. And that's you're going to be doing evil deeds. Uh, and if you need an explanation of what that is, I'll let you read uh, Romans 1, was that 18 or 19 through chapter 3 about part way. And uh, by the time you're done with that, you'll understand evil deeds, what that refers to. Um, all right, verse 22. So that's how we were. And similar to this Ephesians 2 idea where it talks about who you were and then there's a but, right? Uh, but verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to what? Yeah. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So his work on the cross, the purpose of it, the definition of it, is that in his body, by putting to death your sin, by paying the penalty for your sin, uh, by being judged in your place, he has presented you as before you were alienated and hostile mind doing evil deeds. And what are the descriptions now? Yeah. So we even get the three to three. Um, what does holy bring to mind in Scripture? Set apart for a purpose. Good. Or what about blameless? Is it different? Is it the same? Are they similar? What did sacrifices in the Old Testament have to be? Yeah. They had to be holy, as in they were set apart. They were without flaw, at least in any major sense. Uh, They were supposed to be spotless. And so the idea here is the same. You're holy and blameless because there was a perfect and holy and blameless sacrifice for you. And so the result is that you are now spotless. You're now holy, blameless, and instead of doing evil deeds, now you are above reproach. Does that mean everything you do is perfect now? Does that mean all your good works are perfect now? And yet, how are you above reproach before God? Right. So just as he covers over the sins already committed, so he covers over the sins we will commit. And he takes our imperfect works and he washes those just like he washes everything else about us. Right. And yet somehow he takes those filthy rags and he cleans them and presents white, uh, clean, holy linen to God instead. So there's just this grand reversal that takes place. Us who were lost in that old creation fallen order, 
And now we've been brought into the new covenant and cleansed, uh, clothed, if you will, to be able to dwell there. All right, and then verse 23, and we'll see if we can get through this or not. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So what is going on in verse 23? So you've got this grand reversal, this grand statement about who you are and what you have been made into. And then what is 23? At least how does it start? If. What's the if? It does depend on the context, uh, but a lot of the time it does. And so that's going to be the question here. Is it more the sense if, or is it the if like, well, that's great. If, you, if this happens, then that's true of you. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It's kind of the sense thing. I just didn't like how you worded the, the part before that. Um, I, I won't get into that. Uh, <laughs> I think you're right. I think it's more of the sense thing. And we need to connect it to what came before. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if Christ has done that for you, will you fail to continue in the faith? No. So the if, in a sense, is just saying, well, if you don't actually continue in the faith, what was never true of you? The verse before. But if that is true of you, therefore, you will continue in the faith. And so don't take the ifs like, well, you're truly saved if you put in the work. That's not what it's saying. Um, But it is saying there's an element of perseverance uh, that every believer has. Or you're not a believer. (laughs) And so I think that's what the if means here. It's connecting it back to what came before. If that is true, you will continue in the faith. If you don't continue in the faith, it shows that it wasn't true to begin with. Uh, And part of that is being stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. And that kind of reminds me of uh, building your house on shifting sands versus on a solid foundation. Uh, it's kind of similar to a golf shot, too, where you got to put your weight in the right spot, and I've never been able to figure that out. Bob, maybe you could help me figure that out sometime. But uh, being solid and stable uh, so you stand firm, can stand fast, because it's hard to stand fast when everything beneath you is crumbling. And what is that foundation that we're to stand fast upon. Christ, yeah. What's the wording in 23? It is absolutely Christ, though. The hope of the gospel, which is Christ. But the hope of the gospel in the verse, uh, which has been proclaimed in all creation. Now, now here we're back to an all question, right? Uh, what does Paul mean that it was proclaimed in all creation? That's correct, 
But at the time Paul wrote this, he wrote that it has been proclaimed in all creation. If there were indigenous people in Australia at that point, had they heard the gospel preached? No. So how is it all here? Yeah, in a sense, I see what you're saying. Uh, so there's kind of two ways you could take it. And I'm not sure if you can say either is really wrong. One, at this point, who had the gospel gone to so far? Jews? Gentiles? Yeah, the Roman world, pretty much the known world. So in that sense, you could say all creation. I think it's more the Jew-Gentile thing, that the gospel has gone forth. It's in all creation. It's out there. I think that's what all means here. And all is not meant to say every last corner, every single person has heard it yet. I don't think that's the intent here. All right, and so it's this great gospel that Paul has become a minister of. All right, any further thoughts or comments about any of that? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, otherwise there'd be no reason in the pastoral epistles when giving qualifications for elders and deacons that they'd be above reproach. Why give that if we're already above reproach? Well, we're talking about our salvation here. Uh, big picture, not day-to-day. Of course, the day-to-day comes out of that, but anyway. All right, any other comments before we close in prayer? All right, let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were pleased uh, to take on flesh and enter into this world, uh, that you were pleased to live a holy life, to live a perfect life, that you would be willing to go and take our sin upon yourself at the cross, that you would subject yourself uh, to, to judgment, to the displeasure of the Father because of our sin, and that you would rise again uh, and give us the hope of resurrection, this hope of glory. Father, help us to rest in that. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name.